you would take your Bibles and open with me to a little bitty book in the back called Third John. Third John. It's interesting because I was going to be gone. So since I wasn't going to be here, we had to take care of the bulletins a couple of weeks in advance. And Emily said, what is your sermon going to be on? I said, it's going to be on the growing Christian. I'm going to talk about this, 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 and this. And then I started to prepare all that. And I hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. So I don't know so much that I'm preaching on that. Um, but what the Lord did lay on my heart was Third John. So we're going to go through the entire book today. Normally I would divide this up into at least two sermons, but there's no Sunday school. So first let me start by giving you some... Well, actually, first, let's start by praying. I think that's the most important thing. Let's do that. Father, before we look to go verse by verse through this incredible book, we ask God for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that you are the author of Scripture. We thank you that all of it is God-breathed. We thank you, God, that every word matters, that it is equal in inspiration from beginning to end. And that, Father, it has everything that is useful for training us in righteousness, exhorting us, rebuking us, encouraging us. Truly profound what we hold in our hands. And so I pray, God, for your mercy today, administering it to our minds and to our hearts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let me give you some preliminary information about Third John. Of course, the author is John. Uh, There are many Johns in Scripture, but the most common John that we would understand is the one who wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd John. And that's why even though he is not mentioned by name in this epistle, this small letter, you can tell from the other writings in Scripture that it's the same person writing. He also had the privilege of writing Revelation. As far as the date of writing, it's believed that he wrote this in between 90 to 95 AD. Some people would say a little bit later, but it seems like that in the latter part of his life, he actually went to Ephesus because of the problems and issues that were happening there and took up ministry and pretty much finished out his days until he ended up being arrested and exiled uh, to a penal colony on an island called Patmos where he was pretty much hammering out license plates for the rest of his life um, and and, and just stranded. And if you've ever seen pictures of Patmos, it's very blah. I don't know what else to call it. There's nothing there. There's barely anything green that grows there. Uh, But however, there he did receive the book of Revelation, and so it's special for that reason, definitely. Uh, What's interesting about John is he's old in age, and he's at a church that had more ministry and probably more awesome ministry in it than any other church that we read about in the New Testament. In fact, Paul spent three years at this place. Now, we could say, good grief, that's a lot of teaching to receive over three years' time. Paul spent that much time. Or we could say they were in that bad a shape that Paul had to spend three years there. Uh, It seems like that after that time, Epaphras, who we read about in the book of Philemon, spent time there. We know that whenever First and Second Timothy was written, and Second Timothy being Paul's last book that he wrote, Timothy was the pastor there. Then later on, they got John as a pastor there. Sounds like a pretty successful roster, does it not? But here's what that tells you. It doesn't matter how well known your preacher is. If the people don't obey the Lord, he removes the church. Period. 
It doesn't matter. The preacher is only one person dispensing his spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. Everyone else is to be dispensing and contributing in the same manner. What's interesting is, is this is probably the most personal letter in the New Testament. It's written to a man named Gaius. And from everything we can tell, he was a faithful brother in whatever church that this was written to. We're not even for sure where this letter went, where it ended up at. We don't know. Uh, He probably wrote it from Ephesus. And what's interesting here is the word truth is mentioned six times in 15 verses as a prominent hit. What's, What's odd about this being a writing of John is that the word love is only mentioned once. But when it's mentioned, it'll punch you in the heart. And that's what you want. If you're going to read the Bible and it's going to come up one time, you want it to count for everything it's worth. And so here's what we're going to do just for funsies. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through the book so that we will get a synthetic understanding of the entire scope of the letter. And then we will go through and we will analyze verse by verse. It says, The elder... To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray in all respects that you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. And I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephus Who loves to be first among them does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And the one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. That's a short letter, isn't it? It's got a lot to say, though. First off, notice that John refers to himself as the elder. Now, this could be for one of two reasons. It could be for the fact of the position that he holds. I mean, he is an apostle. He was someone that was called directly by Jesus, commissioned by the Lord Jesus for ministry, is considered a foundational pillar of the church. He's someone that has been commissioned to write five books of the New Testament. So that's pretty important. But a lot of commentators think that he says the elder just because he's old. Now Tom's not here, so I can't call him that. But that's okay. Chuck is. 
So, we will now refer to Chuck as the elder. But chances are it's because of his advancement in age. And what's interesting is, is he uses the word beloved. Notice verse 1, beginning of verse 2, beginning of verse 5, beginning of verse 11. This is written to a singular person, a Christian, a fellow believer in Christ, probably someone who he esteems greatly to write a letter of this magnitude. He says, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, let's be honest. There are people that we love, and there are people that we love in truth. There is something to be drastically different about the emotional attachment relationship that we should have in the body of Christ. If we don't have that, we should ask ourselves why that is missing. Christ is the bond that unifies us all. If we are not, and by the way, my Kentucky brother is here. And he's here to teach you all what it is to rejoice in the word of God. <clears throat> it is good instruction for us to have. It is Christ who unites us. Have you ever thought that the bond of Christ is greater than the bond of blood? Why is that? Because our bond in Christ is our bond in perfect blood. That's why. When we talk about loving one another in the truth, we're talking about the fact that we rejoice in a common hope. We're talking about that we pray to the same God, the creator and father of all things. We talk about that we rejoice in the fact that we have the truth. This isn't piddly talk that we have. It is conversation of eternal weight and value. We're actually speaking to one another about things of eternal substance. Now, everybody just got back from Christmas time, right? Raise your hand if you saw family, extended family. Man, that was sour. Right? How many of you had conversations that were of no substance? Yeah, you see? And, and because it's audio online, nobody can see if you raised your hand or not. So it's okay. But there were a lot of things you talked about, and after a while you sit there and you thought, i got to find some Brussels sprouts or something. This conversation cannot continue on. Not so in the body of Christ. There is a love in the truth. This is why when Mary and Jesus' legitimate half-brothers, biologically speaking, showed up to see him, they say, your mother and your brothers are here to see you. Jesus said something that sounds like a slap in the face, and it's not. He said, these are my mother and my brothers, the people who are obeying the truth, the people who love the Lord. This is my family. This is where I belong. Do we know that the church is supposed to be a family? It's a family. It's a body. It's a bride. It's many things. The local body of Christ is many things. But it is all united in the headship of Christ. And because he is our great unifier, there is a love that flows from him to the Holy Spirit within us that flows out of us when we are walking in the Spirit that turns around and edifies all y'all. And when it edifies all y'all, all y'all end up edifying me. And that's not Greek. All y'all is perfectly acceptable. So, since that's the case, look what he says. Beloved, I pray, and here's why I love little statements like this. 
Because this helps me think correctly about how I'm approaching the Lord in prayer. I may not need to say the exact same things that are being said by someone who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I know that whatever motives are moving forward from this brother's heart in the Scriptures is going to be true before God. Look what he says. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now, pause for a second. I'm going to make some people mad. This verse has been abused by health, wealth, and prosperity people. Because what they say is, see, the Bible wants you to be healthy. And we know that means money. They automatically got to attach it. Somehow it's inseparable. But they forget the end of the verse. Look at the end of the verse. Is John praying that they would be healthy in their being, that they would have physical health? Yes, he is. But he likens it to something that you have to pay attention to the scriptures or you'll get it wrong every time. Look what it says. Just as in the same way your soul prospers. Your suke. What is another name for that word, soul? We remember this? No, not spirit. Spirit and soul are not, not together. Life. Your life. And this speaks of your spiritual life. This speaks of how you are stewarding your Christian existence with someone who has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in your hands. This is speaking of how you're doing, eternally speaking. Notice, John makes a, 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 a divine claim. We can say it because it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You spiritually are doing awesome. I could only pray that you would physically be doing awesome as well is what he's saying. John knows this man's life. He knows the fruit that's being produced. He understands how God is working and using him. How do we know that? Context is key. Verse 3. Four, there's your causal conjunction, okay? I was very glad when brethren, other believers in Christ, came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. In other words, when we sent people by, and we're going to talk about this in a second, why that is, and they came back and they gave a report about, hey, how's Gaius doing? I tell you what. His life is exemplary because he loves the truth. And because he's so convicted of the truth, his life demonstrates the truth in every conversation, every action, every decision, every desire. He's just manifesting what it is to live in the Spirit. Now, notice that's not anything crazy. He's not levitating six inches off the ground. He's not breathing real deep and getting high on oxygen. It's not weird things that people often want to assume with the idea of walking the Spirit. It's simply knowing the truth. And being so convinced that it's true that you are doing the truth. That's what it is. So notice, you're walking in the truth and brethren are testifying about it. Now, why does it say it that way? That may seem a little strange to us. Here's the reason why. What it seems like in the first century church in New Testament times, it seems that there were elders that were appointed that would be over a region of churches that would meet together. Now, we have a grand luxury here in America because we can actually meet together as a large form body like this. this. You could not fit us all in a house church unless you had somebody with a super house, okay? 
And if you did, we'd be spread all throughout the house. Knowing me, I'd end up preaching in the bathroom or something, probably. But back then they had small little gatherings, little small group churches. And so they would have elders that would preside over that region, that area, and would be visiting in and out all of these small churches and encouraging everybody and rebuking the people that needed to be rebuked and dealing with demonstrating sound teaching. All of these things in and out as a network that was sewn together. It was very different from how we do it now. There wasn't just one chief minister that was over the church or anything like that. It was a group of people that were in and out ministering in those settings. So notice, he's got a report, and here it is. Verse 4 is probably the crux of what we're dealing with is the main thrust of this entire book. He says here, I have no greater joy. Let's talk about that word because we only use it at Christmas when we sing joy to the world, and joy to the world is about the second coming of Christ, not the first coming, so we got that messed up, okay? See, I'm just messing up everybody today. It's okay. Don't feel bad. I'm a little messed up too. So, Notice, joy, an experience of gladness. Now, too often, we have experiences, but they're not in gladness. Too often, we try to have gladness without an experience. Joy is a fusing of both of them. And why is John joyous? What is worth using the word joy out of the recesses of our vocabulary and bringing it to the forefront. Look what he says. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children, and notice how he plays that off of how he's described himself as the elder in verse 1. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Let me tell you this. There is nothing that warms a minister's heart more than the fact that you are living out the word of God. Because The Spirit is working in you, and we have nothing to expect from your life than the supernatural. Why is that? Because Christ is doing the work in you. It's no longer about how well you're trying, about how hard you're working, about how much effort you're putting forth, about where in the world am I going to get the time? Where in the world am I going to get the strength? And you look like a stressed out ball of yarn that cats have had a heyday with. Let me tell you this. This is important. I'm not saying this to down anybody. I'm saying this to encourage you, if this is you, in a better way. That is not a useful approach in God's hands. It's impossible. Why is that? Because it's of the flesh. The flesh profits nothing. God does not work through the flesh. The flesh is us working. And we wonder why we get burnt out and why we get tired and why we can't take anymore and we're mad at everybody and we're bitter all the time. It's because we've been doing a supernatural work that we and of ourselves were never geared to do. It is a work that Christ does through us. So when you're walking in the Spirit, it is the evidence that God is doing supernatural things through you. It's not an evidence that you've gotten saved. I think that's important. We all need time to grow as Christians. We all start out as babies and we need to grow. It's an evidence that you are currently being saved presently. Does that make sense? Yes? You're being sanctified. You're being set apart. You're starting to see the things that the world values and you're saying, no, man, that's not right because I can't find it here. And this is now dictating direction. That's the difference. There's no greater joy in my heart when you share with me ways that you are walking in the truth. I love it. Real quick, short story. 
This past Monday night, we had a, a gathering at a restaurant in a party room off to the side with people who were members of and still members are of Resurgence. They've had a lot of people leave as the church I came from a few years ago. And I had the opportunity to stand up and to talk to them all about how important it is that the scriptures call on us to find wayward brothers and sisters and to point them back to the truth. If we will take them and we will turn them to the truth, we will cover up a multitude of sins. We will save them from such tragedy. And it was an amazing, awesome time of rejoicing in our common salvation. It was great. It was great. I had no greater joy than to hear that even though I'm two and a half years removed from ministering there, those brothers and sisters are still walking in the truth. They may be at different churches, and you know what? I can't say what the Lord does in their life. The Lord puts people in the body. I don't. But what we see is, is that they're still walking with the Lord, and I was grateful for that, very grateful for that. No greater joy than that. Verse 5, beloved, you are acting faithfully, and whatever you accomplish for the brethren... For the brethren, if you've got a pen, mark it. For the brethren. And I want you to see this connection. John would never write, and the Holy Spirit would never condone if it said this. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for yourself. Never. Never. Sometimes we listen to preachers preach because of what we're going to get out of it. Sometimes we go and listen to people sing because of what we're going to get out of it. We participate in helping others because of what we're going to get out of it. The body of Christ is not a self-serving entity. You cannot be considered faithful if the chief concern you have and everything you want to participate in the church is whether or not you like it or whether or not you will benefit from it. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, that is an evidence that you're walking in the flesh. Why? Because all you care about is you. That's dangerous. Because I'm just here to get what I want. Church is not McDonald's. You can't just drive up an order, come to the window, hand me my bag, drop your money in the box, and drive away. Keep your money. Give back your bag. Put on an apron and go around the corner and serve others. That's what I say. Notice what he says. You are acting faithfully. If you want to know what a faithful life looks like, it is one that is investing in the edification of the body. If you want a passage to put next to it, Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16, you cannot go wrong. The idea of maturity within the body is that by Pastors, teachers, evangelists, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, they begin a love-motivated, self-edifying entity known as a mature church. If you want to know if a church is mature or not, does the church edify itself? That's scriptural standards, not my standards. If you want to know if a church is healthy, it is a self-edifying church that is operating in love. It's not hard, or it's not hard to determine. But we really have to give up a lot of me in order for him to be glorified through me. That's for every single one of us. Notice he says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, <clears throat> and especially when they are strangers. 
Now, I'm going to harp on this a little bit, and this isn't totally what John means by this, but I thought it was interesting when I got here. I was talking to a few of you, and I was trying to learn names. And I won't tell you who this is, but if you think about it, you'll know. And I said, now, I don't know their name yet. Can you tell me who they are? The person asked, said, I don't know. I said, how long have you been going to church here? I said, 35 years. I said, how long have they been going to church here? So, well, at least 30 years. <laughs> You've been going to church with somebody for 30 years? You don't know who they are? Look around. Do you know your brothers and sisters in Christ? I'll be honest with you. I don't know all of your names. Some of you sneak away like cockroaches when the lights come on after church is done. <laughs> Either that or you're so excited about donuts, I don't know. Come talk to me. Introduce yourself. Because I, I don't want to have to come up to you and embarrass myself and be like, I've seen you week in and week out. I don't have a clue who you are. I, I would hope that I'm not so prideful as to do that, but I probably am, yeah. So introduce yourself. I'll introduce myself to you. You probably won't want to know me after that. But especially when they are strangers. Now notice, we are talking about faithful activity that edifies the church towards people you don't No. What are we talking about? Look what he says. Verse 6. And they have testified to your love. Now here's the thing. Let me tell you this. If a Christian is going to talk about another Christian, and the thing that comes off of their lips is, man, you wouldn't believe how loving they are. If that's their assessment of their interaction with you, then you can know for sure that your motivation has been that. Love. Because if love is motivating you for other people because of what Christ has done for you, you can't keep it back. You can't beat it off with a stick. It's going to gush. It's going to come forward. It's going to flow. You don't have to worry about whether you're loving or not. You love. Period. The testimony I'm getting from people, Gaius, is the fact that you love people and look what it says here it testified of your love before the church now we don't know if this is a small local gathering but what this seems to be is when they went back and they met up with john wherever he was this became something that was known throughout the entire church of believers in that region gaius is a loving guy he loves the lord and he will love you in the lord that's a good reputation to have If you want to have a testimony within the body of Christ, and let's be honest, that's what this book is about. What is my testimony in the body of Christ? That's the subject. Being loving is an incredible testimony. In fact, I would say that we would be more advantageous in being loving than we would be if we were considered knowledgeable. Why is that? Because we can be knowledgeable and know all the facts of the Old and New Testament in our heads, but it's real difficult to get somebody who doesn't love from their heart. Only the Holy Spirit can eclipse that. And we can often, and it's very interesting that Vern brought this up. You talk about what it is to have quality students, quality people, and people who will turn around and not just be hearers of the word, but be doers as well. Putting the truth into practice. Why? Because people who know a lot and sit around and do nothing aren't any good to Jesus. Doesn't help anybody. I'm smart for Christ. That sounds like early grave to me. Good grief. That's dangerous. Not so in the body. Notice what it says here. They've testified to your love before the church, and you will do well. Now, I love this. 
you will do well to send them on their way. So notice, these strangers only stayed temporarily. To send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. That when you send these strangers to their next destination, you have so set them up for success that you know that it brought a smile to God's face in what you did for them. Who are we talking about here? Who are these strangers? Missionaries. Preachers of the gospel. People who are going everywhere we don't and share Jesus with everybody we can't. Notice that this isn't talking about just financial support. As important as that is, one of the greatest struggles for missionaries on the field is always financially. Always. But I tell you what, the idea of brothers and sisters extending themselves to welcome others in, to love them, to give them a warm bed to stay, to give them a warm shower to take, to give them conversation that is of value, to spend time in prayer with them, to supply a homemade meal for them, that's taking it to another level. That is actually what koinonia looks like in the body of Christ. That is deep-seated, Christ-centered fellowship with one another. It shouldn't be any different that we don't have that today amongst ourselves. It's the same type of thing. So notice what he says here. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God for, here's your explanation, here's what John wants you to know. They went out for the sake of the name. Everybody see how that's capitalized? That's on purpose. Why are they out there? Jesus. Why are they enduring hardship? Jesus. Why are they waking up going to fix breakfast and when they pull their cocoa pebbles out of the cabinet, next thing you know, a snake comes out? Jesus. That happens. Good glory. You get saved at that moment if you weren't, right? Wow. They go through all these hardships, stipulations by the government. I spent over an hour on the phone this morning with Vitaly Smolin in Ukraine, talking to him about how we can go over and help him in the summer and what he's doing. And he's talking about because of all the problems going on in camps there in order to host youth camps and things like that to reach children, the government has cracked down on paperwork. Just another thing they have to go through. Another red tape that's causing them problems in ministering for Jesus. What do they need at that moment? Well, let's get you a lawyer. Not necessarily. They need the body of Christ actively involved, helping, praying. Who was it, Vern? Dave and Sue's daughter-in-law, is that correct? Daughter? She's getting ready to have her fourth kid. No electricity. Anybody here want to try that here? Imagine it in Africa. What do they need right now? Prayer. Well, besides electricity. (laughs) Prayer. We need to be actively involved in interceding for them and doing our part as the body of Christ in calling on God to do only what he can do and providing something that seems absolutely impossible. That's God. He didn't stop being able I'm scared that we stopped asking. That's my fear. He is able to do it. Now, why is that important? Well, number one, they're over there for the sake of the name. That should be our prime understanding of incentive. But look what it says after that. Accepting nothing from Gentiles. You know what it means? I didn't need the money of the world to get God's things done. This is why I discourage any fundraisers. Any of them. Why? If God wants to do us, God will provide for it. What has the world got to offer us 
that we don't possibly have here to do whatever God set us up to do. Did he call us to do it? That's the question to ask. Sometimes we run headlong into things that God didn't call us to do. We wonder why the funds aren't there, the people aren't there, the help isn't there, the encouragement isn't there, because you weren't supposed to be doing it. But here's the thing. If God laid it on your heart and is spearheading you to do whatever it is ministry-wise, he never came up short yet. I love this quote. This is a good quote. Since the one who sent them had all authority in heaven and on earth, it would be truly embarrassing to suggest implicitly that without the assistance of the unregenerate, he could not sustain his servants. The world's got their own things going on. They don't care about Christian things. They want to be accepted by the church. Why is that? Because they want to feel good about their sin. They want to feel good about their lostness. But if we maintain Christ as central focus here, and the fact that sin needed a Savior, and we are preaching the gospel faithfully, we don't need anything they have to offer anyway. We don't bring them to our side. Jesus does. And by doing something like that, it doesn't help anything. So no, no, no. And we can actually call it this foreign support. Foreign support's not needed here. It says here, verse 8, Therefore, we ought to support such men, and we could easily look at that and go, ha, see, monetary. That's all it is. No, it's not what it means. This Greek, work actually, Greek word actually means, in its general sense, to take up something. But in the sense of relation to other people, it means the idea of to receive them gladly, or the idea of welcoming them into your presence, into your fellowship, the idea of extending a hand and drawing them close is what this means. We should support them. Let's find out when our next missionaries are coming in and see who can chomp at the bit in order to get them to stay at their house. I guarantee you'll be blessed by it. If not by them, by the Lord through them, and by the Lord, period. That's one of the reasons why we bought the house we did. When we were looking around for houses, we almost ended up in Partyville. You believe that? Oh, <laughs> some of you just got awake. I'm not saying anything bad about Partyville. But man, that would have been a long drive in the snow to get to church. There you go. See? See? So we were thinking. God kept slamming doors, slamming doors. God, why in the world do you want us to get this house or that you have right here? Why? Because it had a spare bedroom and a spare bathroom on the back. What do you use it for? Family? No. Missionaries. That's what you do. You house missionaries. It was next to Tom. Hey, suffering and blessing, they go hand in hand. So, <clears throat> watch this. Therefore, we ought to support such men. Why? So that we may be fellow, what? Workers with the truth. Stop for a second. Do you realize that any time that you play a role in reaching out your hand into the lives of missionaries in order to love them, draw them in close, care for them, provide for them, build them up, pray for them, you have now become a fellow co-worker with them in their ministry. You're now doing and helping with the overall results that God is going to bring to fruition. Let me show you an example of this. As I told you this morning, I was on the phone with Vitaly Smolin. He's in Ukraine. They work with orphanages there. He does all kinds of medical missions. He works with police force there, all kinds of training, different things like that. And he said, you know, we just had this Christmas thing go on with the orphanages, and it was from your funding, from your church, that actually helped us accomplish a lot of the things that we couldn't have done normally. And he sent me a two-minute video 
that we could sit here and play. So here's what I'm going to ask everybody to do. Take a moment. Look up at the screen. Let's watch these two minutes. That was you. You may not have been there physically, but it wouldn't have happened without you. All because we decided at some point to bring them on as missionaries. They, I don't know if you guys know this. No one else supports them. We're the only church. That's it. They had a marriage conference. We raised $700 to send to them. He was telling me, he said, oh, they said having a marriage conference is a bad thing. You know, they said you might get, you know, 30 people, 15 couples, maybe, maybe to show up. They had 100 couples, 200 people saying, what does the word of God have to say about how I can handle my marriage in a better way? That was you. That was me. That was us. And notice it's not anybody else gets the glory except for Jesus for it. Why is that? Because our motivation in being a fellow worker with them is number one, our love for Christ. Number two, they have the opportunity to go a place where we can't go. They live there. We don't. It doesn't change the fact that the universal body of Christ is edified through their ministry. We have the opportunity to be there the end of July, beginning of August, to go and to help with youth cramps, to visit the orphanages, 870 kids. I'm afraid I'm going to come back with some twins or something. Why would you not want to adopt one? How incredible. We've already been to three orphanages. We have six more to go. Nine orphanages to share gifts. Everybody see the boxes they were opening? Those are the exact same kind of boxes a month ago we were putting together to send places. Some of our boxes might have ended up in those kids' hands. Think about that. See, this isn't some disconnected, just throw money at the wall and hope it sticks kind of idea. What John is telling us here is this is a deep-seated, spiritually wrought involvement in missions. And every person counts. Every person counts. That's the body of Christ. Every person counts. Now, I was going to go ahead and do verses 9 through 15, but I think that'll save for next week because I think it's important. I don't want to keep you because of time. Notice I'm being courteous. Yes, you're welcome. But let me leave you with this. You've heard me say it before. Let me leave you with this so that you can think about it, okay? I think this is really important. And it took me a lot of time to craft this little statement, so humor me a little bit. Every believer, every believer is a minister to the body and a missionary to the world. If you haven't written that down, please write it down. Every believer in Christ is a minister in the body of Christ. Everyone has something to do to edify the body as a whole. But you are also a missionary to the world. Why? Because if you have Christ, you have the words of life. You have the light of men. Sometimes you may be in certain social situations, work situations. You may think, good grief, somebody needs to get out here and reach these people. Tell you what, that's a dangerous prayer. Because what you find is that God is going to put the spoon in deep and start stirring you. 2020 is going to be a year where every single person in this church is encouraged to get equipped to evangelize. A method of sharing the gospel that you can utilize every time that you sit down with somebody without fear, without hesitation, with complete confidence, knowing that God has set up that appointment and has opened the doors for you to walk through. 
That is my goal for 2020. Every single person here and every single person that belongs to this church, it's not here today, being trained in evangelism. Why is that? I'll be honest with you. We ain't got anything more important to do. John Wesley said, every moment that you have, every moment, use it to save souls. Every moment, every moment, every moment. Ministers in the body, missionaries to the world. Everybody good? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Third John, for his desire and his zeal and his instruction and his encouragement and his affirmation regarding our handling of missionaries and the importance of missions and the importance of sharing the gospel, the importance of demonstrating love, the importance of that flowing out through us, the importance of walking in the truth, the importance of our testimony within the body of Christ. What is our personal testimony in the body of Christ? God, I pray that that be a question that rests upon our shoulders. And that if we don't have a confident answer, we will seek your face and come to a confident answer. Do we have a good testimony in the body of Christ? Do we recognize the eternal importance of being fellow workers with those missionaries who are able to go places we cannot go. That our participation is important, that every member is indispensable to the cause that Christ desires to accomplish in this world. And that we have nothing else. Let, let's, <clears throat> I feel like I'm going to preach pray here. Let's, let's be completely convinced in our hearts and minds. God, please, by your Spirit, convince us. We don't have anything else better to do than to share Jesus whether that be with the saved, whether that be with the lost, we need to be edifying and we need to be calling people to faith in Christ. We need to be discipling. We need to be evangelizing. We don't have anything else better to do. We don't have anything more to do. That's it. Father, convince our minds, convince our hearts. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.